Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Bell. Hey everybody, it is episode four. We are back with our second follow-up, which means you don't have a very interesting guest to listen to during this episode. It's just me, but what I lack in intelligence and humor, I make up for in free time. This episode is going to focus on the angiosperm primate coevolution hypothesis. And that's a lot of words. And it is theory-based, and it can seem a little bit scary. But I figured the entire point of this podcast was to take things that seem just inaccessible and scary to the average person and make them seem easier to understand. And I get it. Stuff like this is usually dryly written and kind of technical. So hopefully I can bring a little bit of fun and a little bit of accessibility to this topic. So I hope that you all enjoy this presentation on the primate angiosperm co-evolution hypothesis. Before we get too far into this episode and I fall into that trap of just using jargon and confusing everybody, I think we should do some defining of key terms before we get started. Since a large part of this episode hinges on understanding the relationship between angiosperms and primates, boy, it would probably be a good thing if you knew what an angiosperm and a primate was. To put it simply, an angiosperm is a flowering plant, and you're all probably thinking of beautiful roses and daffodils or something else that I can't just see out of my window, but it is a lot more diverse and broader than that. Grass is an angiosperm. Apple trees are angiosperms. Anything that produces a seed encased in something called a carpal is an angiosperm. It is the most diverse group in the entire plant kingdom. There are over 300,000 different types of species in this group. It's also an incredibly old group, and the first split between angiosperms and their cousins, gymnosperms, which have seeds that don't have a capsule around them, so think things like palms and pine trees, that goes all the way back to 245 million years ago in the Triassic period. But we don't start to see true angiosperms, that is, true flowering plants, until the Cretaceous period, and that's about 130 million years ago, which is still an incredibly long time. But at this time, conifers were still the dominant plant on the planet, and something happened about 66 million years ago that made the angiosperm just diversify like crazy and become the dominant plant species on the earth. But before we get to what caused that to happen, we should define what a primate is. 
you are a primate. You, the person who is listening to my voice right now and mildly enjoying it, are a primate. I am a primate. All of your human friends are primates. All of your human enemies, for that matter, are primates. The person whose car that you backed into two weeks ago at the grocery store and didn't leave any insurance information, I know what you've done, is a primate. And while humans like to think of themselves as special, we are by no means the only primates. Humans are apes. All apes are primates. Other apes, like our cousins the chimpanzee, the gorilla, the bonobo, the gibbon, and the orangutan are also primates. Every monkey is a primate. Every lemur is a primate. And then there are also these more basal groupings that are super cool and probably not quite as well known as other parts of the primate group, like lorises and galagos and my absolute favorite, the tarsier. If you've never heard of a tarsier, you should stop this podcast right now, Google it, and look at all these images. They're super cool, and they move in an amazing way, but we're not talking about tarsier specifically, so we're going to stop on that for now. There is quite a bit of diversity within the primate order, but there are certain characteristics that are shared throughout primates. Primates have eyes that face forward. So what does that mean? If you think about things like horses or deer or rodents, they have eyes that kind of sit on the side of their head. And that means that they can see a large degree of the world around them. But the area in which their eyes cross over in the front is very small. So they don't have great depth perception. Primates don't have a huge degree to which they can see around them, so our peripheral vision is a lot smaller, but the amount in which the eyes cross over in the front is a lot bigger, meaning we have excellent depth perception. Primates also tend to have extremely good color vision. Primates also have a very distinctive arm. Our shoulders are very sturdy, but they're very movable. We have a bone called a clavicle, also called the collarbone, that goes from the outer part of our arm, like right around our shoulder, to the uh, bone that goes right down the middle of our chest called the sternum. And that has a great degree of stability, but there's not a lot of bone around our actual shoulder, so we still have a huge degree of maneuverability. Take a second and look at your hand. You do not have claws. Instead, we have nails, and that's allowed our fingertips to have more surface area. If you look at the other side, you'll see these little ridges. Those are apical ridges or as everyone that is not related to a bioanthropologist would call them, fingerprints. And those allow us to grab onto something and have more stability when we're doing that. So it increases our security when gripping. And speaking of gripping, primates can do it with their hands and for the most part with their feet as well. 
Primates have incredibly large brains for their body size. But it's not enough to just say that and walk away from that statement without a little bit of refinement. And I know everyone loves refining statements in their everyday life. Specifically, primates have a large neocortex. And the neocortex is something that we use for cognitive abilities, which is a bit of jargon and I promised I wouldn't use it, so I'm going to define what a cognitive ability is. It's stuff like uh, planning and consciousness and reasoning. Primates tend to be the only group that do something called tactical deception, also known as Machiavellian deception, meaning that we intentionally deceive other things. However, our ability to do this deception comes at a price. Specifically, our large brains take a lot of calories to keep going. So the very first primates had to eat things that were incredibly calorically dense, meaning they had to make sure they were getting a lot more energy than they were putting out to get that food. So now we know the characteristics that all primates share. But the big question, the question that kind of keeps every scientist in this field awake at night is, how did they get these characteristics? And why did they get these characteristics? And well, you know, that's not the easiest thing to answer. So let's take a look at some of the hypotheses behind this evolutionary track that will lead us to the actual topic for today's episode. And I promise we are just minutes away from the point of this entire episode. So just stay with me. Way back in 1914, Frederick Wood Jones hypothesized that primates evolved this suite of characteristics so that they could live in trees. And it makes sense. Our earliest ancestors in this primate evolutionary lineage lived in trees. Look at your hands. They are tailor-made to grasp on to limbs and to move through uh, a canopy. The way that our shoulder allows us to have a full range of motion means that we could easily maneuver through branches and swing to uh, areas that would otherwise be difficult to get to. But here's the problem. Lots of other things that aren't primates live in trees. And those things don't look like primates. Squirrels have claws and they have eyes that are not frontated, meaning they're on the sides of their head. They tend to do just fine. I mean, let's be real. If I had to race a squirrel through the trees, I would lose 100% of the time. Now let's move forward a little bit to 1971 when Matt Cartmill looked at the other unique characteristics of primates and specifically at some of the smaller members of our group, things like lorises and tarsiers, and thought, hmm, 
We have these really large brains, and if we're gonna have a small body size, we're gonna need a lot of energy to power these brains. Now, these small groups that are still living and can be studied eat insects. They are called insectivores, so they have to hunt insects and they have to do it extremely efficiently. And because of this, they have amazing vision and a, an ability to either sneak up on their prey or kind of jump and pounce on it. So he came up with this theory called the visual predation hypothesis. And he thought, we obviously evolved to live in trees, but we are specifically doing it with a group of characteristics that would make us incredible visual hunters. And this hypothesis was generally accepted until 1991, and we have officially arrived to the subject of this episode, the primate angiosperm co-evolutionary hypothesis. Welcome, welcome all. In 1991, Robert Sussman looked at this visual predation hypothesis and he saw a few problems. So the group that Cartmill hypothesized were these proto-primates and the reason that this group of traits that we all share evolved were not actually part of our evolutionary lineage. They're more closely related to Kalugos, which are incorrectly referred to as flying lemurs. They do not fly and they are not lemurs. But they're really cool and they're, they're the way that they can glide through the air kind of like a sugar glider is awesome and you should still go to YouTube right now, pause this and look at a Kalugo and how it glides through the air. Next, Dr. Sussman looked at these basal parts of the primate lineage, so things like lorises and tarsiers, and what he found is that primarily they hunt through sound. So they'll hear an insect and then they will locate them with their eyes. So this is not visually oriented hunting. They're hearing something and then they're looking at it. And they also found that pretty much anything that hunts does this. So they looked at cats and they looked at canines and they're always stimulated by a sound and then they'll locate it with their eyes. And the thing that really changed his thought process was that it appears by looking at primate digestive systems that even in the earliest uh, part species in this group, that plant matter was always an important part of the diet. So he started to look outside of the primate order and towards other things that may have some of these traits. Uh, and what were they eating? And he found that the only mammal that has a visual system similar to a primate's was a fruit bat. And exactly how are they similar to our visual system, but different from other bats? Fruit bats have eyes that are in the front of their skulls, just like ours, so they're looking forward. Uh, bats that eat insects do not have that. Fruit bats also have excellent color vision, just like us. 
insect-eating bats do not have that. Now, I don't want to say that bats also have all of the other things that make primates primates. They absolutely do not. But if they have this visual system that is very similar to ours and they're eating fruit, Sussman started to think maybe the primate order evolved to eat fruit as well. So he started to think about how would fruit be obtained? And it's going to be on the very end of these small terminal branches on trees. So terminal meaning the end. And if you've ever looked at an apple tree, the apple is just kind of hanging on these small spindly branches that really can't bear any weight. So for something like a fruit bat to get to them, it's pretty easy. They fly up to it and they grab onto it and they eat it. But for something that's living on top of the branches or swimming, swinging from the branches, it's going to be a little more difficult because these small spindly terminal branches aren't going to hold a primate's weight. They're just going to fall off. But since we have the ability to hang on to other branches with our grasping hands and feet, and we have these uh, greater surface area fingers with the fingerprints that also increase our grip strength, we can balance ourselves and get to these fruit. And that is all well and good. Everything fits nicely into one little box. But the problem is he had this great hypothesis. Now he had to find the evidence. So this brings us back to the angiosperm. And I said that something happened about 66 to 65 million years ago that caused the angiosperm to become more and more prevalent on the landscape. And does anyone know what that is? I'll give you a second to answer. It was the impact of a huge comet, the comet that killed off the dinosaurs and made room in the ecological niche for mammals to become uh, more prevalent in the landscape. But to outcompete other plants in the in the landscape at this time, the angiosperm had to find a way to disperse their seeds more efficiently. And while I promised I wouldn't talk about the movie Jurassic Park again, I am going to quote them one more time. Life finds a way. And Sussman states that the evolution of primates and birds is directly related to the evolution of of angiosperms. This is where the idea of co-evolution comes into play. So what Sussman found is that at the Paleocene-Eocene boundary, and this is what's known as a thermal maxim, you start to see a lot of diversity in a lot of things. Angiosperms take over at this point. But we also see the things that are feeding on the fruit from these plants and dispersing these seeds start to diversify and become more prevalent as well. And it turns out that looking at the fossil record, there just weren't any other animals filling this niche of being able to crawl out to the ends of branches and feed on the fruits or flowers or whatever was growing in that area. 
And here's where the visual system comes into play. Our primate visual system is specifically adapted to see the color red. If you look at human evolution, specifically human societal evolution, red is a color that is always just kind of there. It always is meaningful to us. And that could be that we are so ingrained to see the color red because that is also the color of a ripening fruit or a flower that is just ready to be picked and and the nectar to be taken in to nourish that brain that needs that energy so badly. And then this hypothesis was given even more evidence with the discovery of Carpolestis simpsoni. So what he found is something that is starting to develop these primate traits. It has grasping hands and feet. It has a finger surface that is greater than something that would have a claw. And it has the dentition of something that would eat fruit and nuts. So here we have this animal that is developing a way to get out to these terminal branches with the, uh, with the teeth that could process this food, and everything starts to come together and make this theory more and more robust. And as time has gone on, um, research into how primates' color vision evolved is starting to confirm this more and more, and more information with how angiosperms developed with the seed dispersers. So those are things like bats and birds, and now, most likely, primates, which in turn gives more and more support to the angiosperm-primate coevolution hypothesis. And if you are still with me, congratulations, you've made it through an entire podcast based on a theoretical understanding of primate origins. You've made it, you've done it, and hopefully you had a little bit of fun along the way and maybe even understood something a little bit better than you had before. If you want more information on this topic, please go to the website www.scinite.com. Dot com, where you can find links to this episode and show notes to whole websites and articles devoted to this topic. Maybe I'll even throw up some of the original articles so that you can look at what a scientific journal representation of this topic would be. And that is the end of episode four, the angiosperm coevolution hypothesis. Thank you so much, as always, to the River Power Podcast Mill. We have an entire slate of podcasts that can fill every auditory niche that you have. Things like Pulp from Beyond the Veil, Stone Soup, Too Many Hats, and, like I said before, if you're not sick of me, Windsor Live. We have a little bit of a back catalog you can listen to on that particular podcast, but we are currently taking a little bit of a break until September. We also have another project that I am so excited and are currently working on developing. I don't have a release date for it, but stay tuned. I guarantee it will be your new favorite podcast when it is created. 
And also don't forget to rate and review this podcast on whatever uh, service you're listening to it on. That gives us the opportunity to increase our listenership and increase this community so that maybe we can get some new scientists that find this this podcast and want to talk to me. If you are a scientist and want to talk to me, please reach out. The email is on our website. And again, that website is scinight.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.